start. Be Real is brought to you by the MFA in Writing program at California College of the Arts in San Francisco. Their two-year program has launched Molly Prentice, Adam Nemet, and Julie Lithcott-Hames. Come write with them. Learn more about CCA's den of poets, raconteurs, playwrights, and novelists at cca.edu slash writingmfa. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal. Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to your movie reviewing and reappraising podcast Be Real, live from a hotel bed in Lincoln, Nebraska, USA My name is Chance Solon Pfeiffer And I'm Noah Ballard How are you, buddy? I'm great, man I've been hanging out with you for the past two days yeah, it's been really fun. It's been wonderful. Lincoln's always a good time. Lincoln's always an interesting time. It's always the same time, though. But with a few new buildings, the a Huddle few- Cube is certainly looming over all proceedings. Yeah, it's like the Marvel Avengers building in the middle of New York or something, but it's real. Is Huddle real? I've yet to see any results. I've never used their goods or services. It's because you're try- not trying to get drafted. What is it? It's like high school football videos yeah great (laughs) um are there any other highlights of the trip we should touch on well let's do the ethos corner up front here that sounds great let's throw to it nick thanks thanks for doing this keep it real think slow we should get through just fine a little rider donnie donnie a little rider So we have a pretty interesting crew with us this week. Sure. This weekend, this four-day week. and You brought some wonderful publishing people from I New York? I brought some New York people. I brought my little brother, Nate, who's laying in the bed next to the one on which we're recording. Away, giving a sign that I was told has something like rock and roll, right? I've never known. Yeah, he's just keep rocking. And rolling. And rolling. Oh, we went to Highway Diner. Went to Highway Diner. Saw Casey Welsh. Yep. He was on the podcast like in 2017, wasn't yeah, he? We talked about uh, Superstore Servitude with Casey Welsh. It was a dark time. An episode I think he failed to share. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Casey. We saw Michael Todd K. Kemet. Lucy's friend. reunited with her sister That's and her right. grandmother. Lucy's grandma came to A Star is Born with us. And her sister. And all these people. We saw The Star is Born with eight people. We all went in like thinking it was something I think totally different, except for you because you'd seen it at the I'd press already screening, seen it, but <laughs> failed to tell anybody what happens at the end. I just sort of smiled this weird, satisfied <laughs> smile as we walked it's out. It's not true. You didn't look at me. <laughs> I you were crying. You had tears I, in your eyes. You I couldn't, couldn't see, see anyone. <laughs> um. Yeah. So it's been good. It's been great. I'm excited to see Monday and Tuesday. Uh, little plug, my client Jordan Farmer is releasing his debut novel, The Paul Bearer. I'm excited to read that. Yeah, he's doing his launch event on Monday, uh, which is in the past when you're listening to this. But buy his book, The Paul Bearer. Yeah. Anywhere books are sold. Okay, let's run. But we're here today to talk about the state of the YA novel as film. 
young adult novels that have been turned into films in 2018. We're going to talk about The Hate You Give, To All the Boys I've Loved Before, and Love, Simon. That's right. And a little bit later, uh, Christy Yandoli from BuzzFeed is going to join us to talk about uh, some behind-the-scenes production things with The yeah, Hate You Give. Yeah, she was like all up in the production having, for yeah. The Hate You Give from when they optioned the book to profiling Angie Thomas right. to being on set and watching them go through all the stuff. Because right. there was like a little bit of controversy around the production of the film, but she was there for all of it. So That's right. So that's coming up a little bit later on the show. But I think we're going to start with The Hate You Give, are we not? Yeah. It's going to take the most energy, I think. So why not start there before one of us just passes out? So Noah has already mentioned Angie Thomas, who wrote the book. This is a story set in any town USA, right? It feels more like it's a Ferguson allegory, which is in Missouri. It doesn't... I Maybe it's supposed to be St. Louis. I don't know. But it's not supposed to be anywhere. Right. It's, it's, it's everywhere in America and nowhere. Exactly. In these two divided communities, Williamson and Garden Heights. Williamson, the rich, white, affluent suburb. Garden Heights, the predominantly black, impoverished, for lack of a better word, ghetto. Mm-hmm. And our main character is Star Carter. Two, with two R's. Star with two R's. And she lives in Garden Heights and goes to the rich white school in Williamson and we learn via a lot of voiceover in the beginning her kind of like her state of mind with regard to her the double consciousness yeah to her race trying to make it through and the code switching she does every single day um and how the white kids at the school in williamson can use black slang and it sounds really cool but if she uses it it will use it it will destroy her reputation and smear her as a person in their eyes um and then back over in garden heights she's dealing with issues like the what are they called the king lords this is like the the anthony mackie's crime syndicate yeah anthony mackie's crime syndicate seems to include one mercedes-benz and an infinite number of goons that's true um and yeah it's just a an overpleased impoverished community that's that's still trying its best there there are small businesses her dad maverick uh owns a, a small grocery store and the mom regina hall wants to move them out because she feels it's not safe. Um, and she has an older half-brother and a little brother. And the dad, Maverick, has done time in prison but has been out for several years. And he was like the hand, right-hand man to King. King. Anthony Mackie. But you also understand a part of her education as a human that comes back around is uh, Maverick has tried to instill early on in their lives so what to do when you interact with police and, but also making the, them... Yeah, the Black Panther. Uh, exactly. Uh, and the, the 10 points of the Black Panther party. Right. Um, really making that a part of their, their consciousness. Um, so that's kind of the character setup. And then the plot setup that you need to know is she's at a party, innocently enough, and runs in the, into... In, the, uh, in Garden Heights. And runs into uh, a childhood friend, Khalil, um, played by Algie Smith. And he's taking her home from the party, and they're kind of reminiscing a little bit. And, and they, they kiss. Ha- and they have this kiss that's very tender and kind of wonderful in the sense that she has this other really shitty boyfriend, Chris, at the white school. Um, God, he's, he's, we'll talk about Chris more than we should. We could do a whole podcast on Chris. <laughs> and then, of course, in horrifying fashion, they're pulled over for maybe failing to signal a turn, but maybe just driving while black. And um, Khalil is 
sort of following some of the officer instructions, sort of not, and then just like in the He's definitely like protesting the whole encounter, which in his defense is a farce. Right, of course. But he's definitely being antagonistic to this police officer. He's then asked to stand outside of the car. Yeah. While his plates and his license are run, and then when he reaches back in for a hairbrush or something, is murdered. He's killed by the police officer. Right. So then Star, who witnesses the whole thing in gruesome detail, has the decision to make through the rest of the movie of how to deal with this encounter, how public to be. Uh, testifying in front of a grand jury. Should she go on the news? Should she tell her friends at Williamson? Um, should she become the poster person for uh, Issa Rae, who's the um, the lawyer and advocate for Khalil? Um, and basically in like a super urgent contemporary story that we've seen play out on the news and on Twitter um, in terrifying detail... Over the last several years, she's like at the center of this. My name is Star. Two R's. Daddy named me that. Garden Heights. Mama and Daddy says our life is here because our people are here. We got Mr. Rubin's Barbecue, Mr. Lewis's Barbershop, and Daddy's Store. The high school is where you go to get junk, high, or pregnant. We don't go there. Williamson is another world. So when I'm here, I'm star version two. Yo, those kids are lit. Basically, Williamson star doesn't give anyone a reason to call her ghetto. And I hate myself for doing it. Until the weekend comes around. I get those goosebumps every time. What's up? Are you bad? Now I know you be hanging with all the white kids. Shut up. Yeah, when you're not around, when you go that Out of the car. Yo, Star, you okay? Go back where he told you. Come out. I'm not playing. Go back where... <laughs> what did you do? Today, Garden Heights is reeling after the shooting of a 17-year-old black teenager by a white police officer. And it's ultimately about this young woman deciding which community is actually her community. Right. And... What she needs in her life and what she doesn't. Right, and finding her voice and taking her birthright of being that star and illuminating this issue, um, which is great. I mean, that's a great thing to make a movie about. I think my question to you, Chance, though, is on the spectrum, though, of I think all these YA things have this scale of, like, how didactic are we going to be? Yes, and, like, how much are we going to teach you about X? How much are we going to teach you about coming out? How much are we going to teach you about being in, like, a mixed racial family? Right. How much are we going to teach you about police brutality in this fake city with these characters with traits ripped from other headlines of other accounts that creates maybe not a more nuanced understanding of it, but a more simplified sort of there are good people on both sides kind of debate to this whole thing. It is not my favorite thing when the movie goes into voiceover and essentially says Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines code switching as. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But I think this movie, like when it 
tackles racism head on. Like the movie opens with, I think the most powerful scene about racism in the movie is about that moment when the father has to tell his son and daughter, this is how you behave when you are around a police officer. And that ultimately failing to do that becomes the inciting incident Mm -hmm. for the thrust of this plot. And I think that's great. Like, don't be, it's almost when the movie's afraid to be didactic like that is when it struggles the most. Like when you have that, you know, I mean, compare and contrast, like the relationship with the white best friend who's like, well, the cop's a guy too. Yeah. And then going back, but having that nuanced sort of common monologue where he's talking about like being a black cop, you know, and the sort of where one stands in, between policing someone in Williamson as it compared to Garden Heights, aka policing a white person as opposed to policing a black person. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. What makes me uncomfortable is this room that's left open for the sort of all lives matter kind of opinion. My evidence mostly is if we are supposed to be any sort of if you're an outsider to this story you're supposed to be chris right chris is the entry point for a white audience into this being like oh i listen to rap music but i don't really get it and oh i come from privilege and i don't really understand that and like oh she witnessed her friend getting murdered while she was late to our date too that's annoying Mm -hmm. kind of things and then ultimately like he I guess becomes an ally by driving his Range Rover like into the riot to drop her off. But still like what I cannot forgive about this movie is that it lets him say the phrase, I don't see color. And then the movie forgives him for that and like has him learn something while another character is almost has the same rhetoric and like is not let off the hook. Right. Haley. Haley, the best friend. I'm not sure on a basic contained story conflict level that this movie does a good job at all of showing the attractive or potentially corrupting parts of Williamson. You know what I mean? It's evident to, I think, most people who would watch this movie that Haley's a piece of shit, that Chris is a piece of shit, (laughs) that, like, yeah, like, using... getting this education and being able to get out of Garden Heights is attractive and something that the Regina Hall mother wants them to do. What I'm missing is somebody, I'm missing the woke white civics teacher who she really looks up to and then maybe gives her kind of an all lives matter thing late in the movie and it's horrible and, and she's like, right. You know, and, and but there's nothing complicated in this movie. It doesn't, it, it all, it, it turns out that all the white people are racist. Like that's the big twist. And like but one it's of not them, you see it from the very beginning right? And, you're and maybe like, one of them can be saved, but it's not confusing. Mm-hmm. It's not like yeah, like you said, like a teacher preaching one thing in the classroom and something else like off campus, which would be kind of, I agree, like a much more interesting. So the plot. didactic part is everything in this movie is set up for the hate you give to win an argument with itself, right? But not alienate anyone either, yeah. so it can make a lot of money. But I mean, I think we should give it some credit too for just, in some ways, being about what it's about. If we, if you mm-hmm. and I were going to formulate, uh, I don't know, a thirty movie like young adult 
adaptation category. It would be about white kids and their white bullies. And he bullied me and something's going on at home. And And I'm in this weird love pact with this gay person. (laughs) Um, That's a lot. That's, that's easy. eh? that's. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Um, Will you date Katarina so I can date her sister, Heath Ledger? Sure. There's so many pacts. Um, there's a pact in Love, Simon coming up. Yeah. There's a pact in all these. I think there's like a pact too between uh, Khalil and Star too. Yeah. Where, and that's what I sort of, is interesting about this. So much like that recent case where that cop went into that other guy's apartment that she in thought Dallas, was hers yeah. in Dallas and killed him. The movie sort of pokes at these things that like, Khalil did out of desperation, aka he was like a drug dealer for King. Wow. But like he had no other option. So the movie presupposes because his grandmother, who was raising him and his sister, had cancer and lost her job because she didn't have pre existing condition coverage, that he was sort of put in front of the gun, so to speak. Yeah. But isn't that like a little easy? It's definitely easy because the take. The takeaway of something like, and I guess we're going to just go full out here, of the horrifying story in Dallas is that the mentality of police officers in this country, for the most part, is wrong. Yes. That there was the whole thing of like, oh, well, he didn't follow lawful orders. You were in his apartment. Right. Lawful orders don't matter. You are public servants. It's lawful orders versus common sense. Right. Like if there's no one else on the road and this, and Khalil pulls his car back onto the street without signaling, like it doesn't make any fucking difference. Right. You don't need to pull him over. Just the way, of course, someone who's trespassing in someone else's house isn't going to follow your orders. Yeah. And so to have... Common give that speech like it's complicated for police officers to this yeah you're right the movie chooses to complicate it complicates the simple things and simplifies the complicated things there it is like the fact that like a more interesting setting here too would have Williamson like the service jobs worked by the people from Garden Heights mm, like mm-hmm. it's totally well a unrealistic and b kind of limiting that there's no interaction between these two communities. Like, that's always the way it goes. You have the urban center and people, like, use the limited public services to get out to the richer areas to work the service jobs for the rich people. And that there's no, like, scene where stars at, like, a Burger King or something and, like, her friend is, like, behind the counter and she's in front of it and there's, you know, her friend is disrespectful to that person. It's, like, and they make fun of her later, like, when she's back in Garden Heights. Like, it's just, like, a missed opportunity to show that it's not just about race. It's also about money. Yeah. And this comes out of a, a, a thing that's that's weird about this movie is the fact that it's not set anywhere. Right. And that, I think, makes it this racial fairy tale the same way that, like, a Get Out is a fairy tale. Yeah, and one of the problems with it being a fairy tale is then that there's a, a dark, mean wizard who can move the plot along, and that's King, the Anthony Mackie character. Right. Basically playing Claudius or Scar. But there is no white antagonist in this movie. Right. You don't have the girlfriend or the weird dad. The, the, the police officer who killed Khalil should have kept showing up. Right, there's no, why would he not be in the movie again? Right, and instead the movie basically has them encounter police officers who are about to kill them four more times? Yeah. I don't know. 
let's let's say some good things about this movie because there are some more good things. Sure. Amanda Stenberg is good. She is, she's wonderful. She's, she's an amazing young actress. An amazing young actress. You have to be able to show a transformation happening. You have to be a good watcher as an as a young actor in that position of a story unfolding, and she is. Uh, Russell Hornsby, who plays the dad, Maverick He's Carter, so is incredible. Good. The payoff on the the ten party points from the Black Panthers is incredible at this point at which they've gone through a traumatic experience and he stands them in the yard and makes them name them and you I, I at least kind of forgot that that was the opening scene and you're like oh holy shit this is a part of their identity right. too that they've been burying until this moment where they let it all out which then happens again with the I mean the, the image that should be burned in people's minds in this movie is that of star hurling the gas grenade back into the riot police right this movie chooses to go visual and create cinematic moments it's really good but george tillman unfortunately is not john singleton and he's especially not ava duvernay and you have a lot of moments in this movie where voiceover take over the most dramatic moments of the movie and that in my opinion is always just bad directing give that moment to the actor don't you like your actors I don't. I mean, he, he's got such a talent, a wealth of talent in front of him. And when he lets people do things, like when he lets, like the riot scenes play. I think some of the riot scenes are great. Right. You know, and it doesn't. They don't feel didactic. They don't feel like reductive. They don't feel simple because there's so many literally forces pushing these two groups together, and it's creating this line. And you get the sense that they want different things, and right. people have some idea of what this protest will be, and they can't stop the other people who have a different idea of what it'll be. Right, but like all these disparate voices are thrusting this issue together, and that's fascinating. But showing me scenes that I haven't seen before is smart and good and makes me feel like I'm participating in something as an audience member. Voice overing, and then they arrested the bad guy moments, like makes me feel cheap. Right. You know, and then the police... Because that's ultimately, that's what's so confusing about this movie is like ultimately the system that they're rallying against like ties up this movie movie beautifully. Yeah. And then instead we deal with Uncle Scar over here who tries to burn down the convenience right. store. Which is not, the the antagonist was the black drug dealer all along. It's a very strange, careful movie. But on the other side of it, like I cried through the whole fucking thing. Absolutely. And there are also themes in this movie that go beyond yeah. the, the violence of, you know what you never see? You see Star appreciate the cuteness and the adorableness of her parents' committed relationship. Yes. And that's just not something you see with black families on screen, especially families that don't behave like the Cosby show. I thought that it was an interesting move to have them be so obsessed with Harry Potter. Having these ubiquitous cultural touchstones that's like point at this existence where we're more similar than we are different like everybody wants to know that they're a wizard or find out that they're a wizard and go off to hogwarts well it's interesting there's a harry potter reference in uh love simon too which is not quite so weighty but as we think about all these movies as uh, you know at least trying to push forward the young adult genre and whose stories are being told you see them in conversation with the young adult literature of 15 years ago. Right. Um, and, you know, bouncing forward off that. So where do you land on this one, buddy? I know it's problematic. I know we have issues with it, but, like, I don't want to understate 
how important I think this movie is. Yeah. And I think important movies like foster a lot of debate, especially between you and me, about like what they should have done. Right. But I think this movie's pretty brilliant, actually. Oh yeah. For being pretty for being clumsy at moments, I think it accidentally has a lot of human emotion in it. I don't think accidentally. I just think it's like really good at it's really good at like certain kinds of emotional storytelling and just like not very good at filmmaking. Right. And so it fumbles a lot of key things. But I think that the actors are all in. You can feel every all the actors are on the same page. I think the energy makes it a movie you're rooting for. Yeah. Absolutely. And it never fails so wholly that you can't. Before we rate this movie real fast, let's explain our rating system. There is no ambiguity on Be Real. All movies can and will be classified by one of our four ratings. Good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to sheer artistry. The second is pure entertainment. Good, good is easy to explain. It's a movie that engages your inner art critic and brings you some form of happiness. For both reasons, you want to watch that movie again. Think Shawshank Redemption or Jurassic Park. (laughs) Or more recently, Get Out and Lady Bird. That we know of yet. Good, good movies make Noah hyperbolically say, That was the best movie I've ever seen. Bad Bad is easy, too. Movies that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just spent two hours wishing you could watch something else. Think of any musician-turned-actor who gave it a go in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. I'll pass. Or many Nicholas Cage movie where he plays a wizard or a warrior. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. Bad Bad movies make chance say, I hate so much that you made me watch that. Now, good, bad movies. Those we recognize as worthwhile in a cinematic sense, but don't necessarily enjoy. Think Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, or a Ward's Bait that hinges on a historical figure delivering an impassioned speech. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! These kinds of movies make Noah say, But it was so boring. And then I remind him that at least Leo finally got his Oscar for crawling through all that mud. Conversely, bad good movies feed your thoughtless inner child. They're anything from flawed but charming Nancy Myers outings. I'm miraculously done being in love with you! To late career missteps like Al Pacino and Danny Collins. They're loud and silly, like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China or Stargate. It's all in the reflexes. Bad good movies make me want to watch Tombstone, especially when Noah says... But didn't the Mighty Ducks just give you that warm holiday feeling? Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear two friends who watch movies for very different reasons talk about their taste like it's God's own truth. I'll probably give it a good bad. I think it's a good bad just because it's so goddamn sad. Right. I mean, I don't think it has anything to do with the racial allegories, uh, overt or in the subtext. It's just the fact that, like... There's a lot of people dying and people in horrible, violent situations and children in peril. For a little bit more context, Chance, like why don't we go to your awesome conversation with Christy Yandoli from BuzzFeed. Violence, brutality. It's the same story, just a different name. When I attack with impact, it's 
It's best if she don't talk to Father. He's threatening her. It's about more than just Kalu. It's about black people, poor people, everybody at the bottom. I need to speak for him. All right. Well, we are very pleased today to be joined by an entertainment reporter from BuzzFeed News, Christy Yandoli. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you have written a lot about the hate you give uh, in the run up to the movie. We're talking about how you, how you have a, a, a couple sort of larger pieces that might get more into detail coming. Um, but I'm curious because this will probably come out uh, right when the movie does or maybe even a little before. But just beyond general anticipation, what were the big questions on your mind before you saw this movie? You know, I had a little bit of an idea of what to expect because I was lucky enough to go down to the set of the film last October. So in October of 2017, when Fox was shooting the movie, um, I went down to Atlanta and saw some really important, I think, scenes being filmed with, you know, the principal cast and obviously the director. And I was also there uh, when Angie Thomas, who wrote the original novel, was on set. So I had a little bit of an idea what to expect. And I knew how much heart was put into this. Mm. Um, I'm completely biased in that I love this movie. And I think it's a really powerful message. I loved the book before I went, you know, to set and even knew that the movie was happening. So... I've been a longtime fan, but the first time I saw the movie, I, you know, was brought to tears and it's very emotional and impactful, especially for, you know, a YA audience and, you know, it's a coming of age story, but I think we're seeing a little bit of a shift towards, you know, uh, less surface level, like high school aged narratives. And we're seeing, you know, really important stories being told because those are unfortunately coming of age stories too. So I, I had a little bit of an idea what to expect and, you know, the film exceeded my expectations in very great ways. I loved it. I love, I love, love it. That's great. Um, what, were you any of the scenes you witnessed being shot like some of the super heavy hitter emotional scenes? What was the what was the mood like on set when you were there? I watched, you know, at the beginning of the day, I watched a quick little scene or part of a scene even um, when Amanda Stenberg's character Star is in the car um, getting dropped off at her dad's um, corner store, I believe it is, or his right. grocery store, mm-hmm. Mav. To watch that was. Not so heavy, but, you know, they did a bunch of takes of that and then some other quick things. But I would say the more emotional and powerful scene I watched film was when um, Star's character finds out the verdict of the court case. She's sitting in a car next to her boyfriend, uh, Chris, and, you know, she finds out that the white cop who shot and killed her friend Khalil is not going to be tried, I believe, um, in a criminal case. So watching, you know, George Tillman direct her and give her advice and watching them shoot that scene over and over again with background extras and actors in the background, you know, holding signs and kind of heading into what will become the riot scenes. But at this point it's just, you know, uh, 
snippet of what a protest would look like. So Mm -hmm. it was really, it was really empowering to see it uh, and emotional to see it in real life because obviously it's fiction, but the actors, there was emotion behind that and the mood on set shifted a bit um, to something a little more somber. And, you know, especially when this moment in the film is dealing with so much of what we see happening in real life, it's kind of hard to take that emotion out of it. Um, so that was a really awesome thing that I got to see them do. What are you still thinking about from from the movie itself? What has what has stayed with you after having after having seen it? I think the title of the movie, sure. which is a quote from Tupac himself, who mm-hmm. had so much to do with inspiring this story, and then of course. Amanda Stenberg scene where um, at the end of the riots, or I should say in the middle of the riots, it kind of reaches its peak when she stands on a car and is handed a microphone and she's finally owning this moment. I mean, she, she has owned it in other ways, of course, throughout the movie, but this is really her character's like big, big moment when she finds her voice, so to speak. Um, and everything she said was just so raw and you could, mm-hmm. you know, I could even cry thinking about it. Yeah, uh, It's emotional, but it was important. And I think it's important for so many people to see. It's important for, you know, white audiences and black audiences and young people and old people. Like, I know it's marketed as a YA movie, but I really hope that there are lots of people who go and see it and are affected by moments like those. So I want to talk about yeah two two things that that you brought up so far both the the YA space and sort of this movie um, this movie being a good thing in and of itself for for people to experience um, but uh, let's let's start with the YA thing what do you see happening in the in the YA genre either in film or literature or both that makes a movie like this possible i mean for forever and ever this has been the genre of like you know large troubling metaphors that like kids are going through but i really can't ever recall um and tell me if i'm forgetting anything just this like urgent explicit of subject matter probably in any ya thing yeah no there's definitely been a shift um i know that as a consumer of ya books and movies and then as someone who covers it, obviously, um, there's a lot of message movies, if you will. I don't know a better way to phrase that, but sure. a lot of movies with like really strong messages behind them. I think the shift is just has a lot to do with the time we're living in. You know, we're in 2018 when a lot of these issues are at the forefront of the minds of authors and filmmakers and people who are creating this stuff. You know, there's that very cliche quote about write the book you want to see in the world, but it's Mm -hmm. true. And I think that the people who are creating this content, you know, didn't have these things growing up and now they're writing them and making them for other people. Um, Even Love, Simon, which was a lovely, fun movie you know that's a love story it's still an important coming of age story and you know high school YA movie because it's a coming out story and and it's told in such a you know normal way like nothing is different you know except the fact that this main character is dealing with his sexuality and that was important representation so we're seeing a big shift and I think it's just reflective of you know the people making this stuff now and a shift in our culture and how we all talk and think about 
you know, race and gender and sexuality and so many, you know, so many other important issues. Yeah. Do you feel like, I'm, I'm wondering if, if maybe a, a third or fourth part of that, is there, is there a youth movement in general? I mean, I've, I guess I'm, I'm asking it, but I feel like there is. I feel like there is a youth <laughs> movement in general toward just paying attention to young people's agency that has an impact when we go into literature and fiction. Like I think about the YA stuff I consumed when I was like 14 and 15 um, and it could be very inspirational, but I don't think, I don't think the books were asking you to take 16 year olds political agency seriously the way mm-hmm. I think the work today is. Is there something to that? Do you think? Sure. And I mean, maybe it was, but it was masked in, you know, like Harry Potter comes to mind. Which yeah, is or also- I just totally didn't get it. That's also very possible. I mean, when you're dealing with uh, witches and wizards, you know, obviously you're, that's not at the forefront of your mind. Um, and then I guess another book that comes to mind for me that I loved when I was younger and still love is Speak. Um, I don't know that one. What is that? Uh, Speak by Lori Halls Anderson. It's such a good, such a good YA novel. Um, it's about this 16-year-old or maybe 14-year-old girl who's entering high school and dealing with you don't realize this until the end, but she's dealing with the results of a sexual assault. And Mm. so, but anyway, these books to your point are few and far between if they existed at all back then. Um, And if they existed, it was easy to miss. So I, I do agree with what you're saying. I think that there is this youth movement happening and, you know, people are paying more attention I'm sure the internet has a lot to do with that. Um, People have, you know, access to more information and they're able to share their information more readily. And, you know, I think that all of those things are obviously good things. Um, And I hope that we continue to see this kind of shift in what YA and coming of age stories look like. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you feel about the amount of, explaining that the hate you give as a movie undertakes Christy. Cause I feel like there are definitely moments where it favors the telling over the showing. Um, but it also seems like a movie that has this awareness around the fact that you alluded to earlier that this will be a teaching tool and an eye opener for a lot of people. And I think it se- that that feeling seems almost baked into the production. How do you, how do you feel about maybe the movie having that knowledge of itself? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, as far as I know, and as far as I saw, you know, everyone involved in this movie, you know, was hyper aware of all of those things and yeah. was very careful and diligent, you know, about, the way in which the movie was made. And I mean, there was even the whole controversy when um, I think Fox fired um, Kean Lawley, who originally was supposed to play the main character star's boyfriend. Um, he's one of the only white actors and characters in the movie. And honestly, a pretty important role in, you know, Amangela Stenberg's character's life. And then there was a video that surfaced of him from years before filming, you know, making very racist comments and the production, you know, the director of production, everyone acted really quickly in a very like no nonsense way. And they were like, all right, this sucks, but you're fired. And they 
you know, risked a lot by, you know, spending a lot more money and doing reshoots and that whole thing. But it was not only because, you know, first of all, how do you market a movie after the ha- a movie like the hate, you, the hate you give after that? But it was also just it's the message of the movie. And I think that it's clear through that and it's clear through so many other things how seriously um, Fox took it and the director took it. And I also know that Angie Thomas, who, again, originally wrote the novel, while she didn't write the adapted screenplay, she had a heavy hand in, you know, giving advice and feedback. And I was on set with her and she, you know, it was clear that she had a lot of say and that people cared to listen to her because, again, it's all about the movie and the perception and telling the most like authentic version of that story that they could. So I wanted to wrap up, Christy, actually with a question about Chris, because I wish I could poll everyone who had seen this movie about this one specific moment. So on prom night, uh, you know, Chris is star's date and they end up uh, because she's deeply upset. They end up in the back of a limo and Chris gives this sort of like, you know, blatantly tone deaf speech about like babe i don't see color to which my audience kind of groans in that right, moment. right but then seconds later like seconds later he's like but i do see you and then like leans in for the hug and they're hugging and then the scene ends and my i just felt like factions of my audience like a bunch of them kind of like let out a big sigh like okay they're gonna be fine and this other Mm -hmm. half was like are you kidding me with that um but i really wasn't sure what the movie felt about that moment do you know the moment i'm talking about how did you feel about it yeah no i know exactly what you're talking about um i actually spoke when i interviewed george tolman who's the director um he spoke about that scene because you know, obviously Chris is in it, KJ Apa is in it. So they had to shoot it twice. Well, I'm sure they shot it a million times, but they had to go back and reshoots to shoot it because originally Key and Lolly was in the scene. So he brought up how, you know, in that moment, it's one of the most important moments of the movie in that conversation between Star and Chris because Star, you know, loves him or likes him or, you know, whatever, really cares about her boyfriend. But it's really important that he hears where she's coming from and, you know, understands, you know, you can't say like, I don't see color or I'm like race blind because she's black and he's not. And that's just the reality of reality. Um, (laughs) So to, so to ignore it, it makes it so much worse. And you know, while that's not his intention, it's still an important realization for him to come to. So everyone I think involved in the movie knows the magnitude of that moment and that conversation. Um, And it is supposed to be one of the most important scenes in the film. I also think for better or worse, that scene is supposed to be a teaching moment for Chris and Mm -hmm. for probably white audiences for to, you know, take that and take something from that. Um, I also think that this poor girl has been through so much tragedy in her life that it's like, I mean, not even in her life, but just in the past, you know, few months leading up to that conversation. So if she wants to keep her boyfriend, that's okay with me. But I, I totally hear that. And I think that, yeah, there could be a different version of the movie where they break up over that. And she's like, 
screw you. How do you not, you know, how do you not get this? And right. now I'm supposed to forgive you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that in her mind, she maybe had some other stuff going on and she, Probably. and she liked him. I mean, even in the first scene that we meet Chris, she's pissed at him for also a, like, you know, something you could break up with someone over. She felt pressure to have sex with him. <laughs> so, you know, we can definitely point to his character a lot in some, you know, negative ways and be like, that was rude or that's annoying or I certainly wouldn't date someone, you know, but at 16 when you like someone. And I also think his character is supposed to be like a symbol of, you know, like the growth and evolution of what it means to learn about the state of race in America when, and black people in America, when you're so on the outside of that. Right. Um, if that makes any sense. Oh, but, absolutely. I mean, the whole, the whole thing builds to him realizing he just needs to get out of the way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, this has all been a trick. This podcast is called The Trial of Chris, and we'll continue talking <laughs> about it in the full episode. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, then definitely talk about the controversy because that's, yeah. you know, that has a lot to do with his character too. Yeah. Um, well, let's wrap it up there. Christy, thanks so much for your, your time and your insights. And I hope everyone will be on the lookout for the, for the, for the set piece and the Angie Thomas piece coming out. Awesome. I really appreciate that. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course. It's thug life. The hate you give little infants. F's everybody. I know what it stands for. What do you think it means? Well, thanks so much to Christy for the time, and thanks to you, Noah, for linking us up. Absolutely. Christy's great. BuzzFeed's great. The hate you give is great. Well, I fine. have my issues with the hate you give. <laughs> uh, what next? Love, Simon, or Let's do Love, Simon. Okay. So Love, Simon is a teen comedy YA adaptation about hate crimes on the internet yeah basically <laughs> it came out in february of uh of this year it's based on a book by uh becky albertalli and this one was on this one was in theaters yeah 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 okay. i think it made like 40 million dollars sure yeah and it's got the older brother from jurassic world who i say is low ran ansel elgord nick robinson even his name yeah, that's not a very distinct name, Nick. Nick Robinson? <laughs> hey, guys. How was the party? It was really fun. Aces. <laughs> he's wearing a woman's sweater, and he's drunk. Well, he didn't drive drunk, and he's home before curfew, so. That's what I thought we got. Right? Yeah, we're good parents. Yeah, we're good. Right? Young good morning, Creekwood Hog! My name's Simon. For the most part, my life is totally normal. I have a family that I actually like, and there's my friends. We do everything friends do. We drink way too much diced coffee, walk gorging on carbs. So, I'm just like you, except I have one huge-ass secret. Hey! I like your, your boots! I said I like your, your boots! Goodbye! Nobody knows I'm gay. <sighs> he finally sees an an opening or like at least someone who sees him when another classmate sort of outs themselves on this anonymous message board saying, you know, I feel so emotionally devastated that I like can't be myself and my highs are super high and my lows are super low. And 
you know, the truth is that I'm gay too. Right. And so through that, we are then introduced to Simon's worlds where he has these like very sort of cut like uh, cookie cutter parents it's like the prom queen and king yeah the Jennifer head Garner cheerleader and, and football star yeah josh Dumel, um jennifer garner i think they're both really good in this i think they're all right i think Ju- josh Dumel has never like worked harder he's working very hard a little too hard in the end i think but i thought he was great in that the scene in the driveway that's too much for me that's too much for you and then he has this this annoying little, the annoying little sister is a real problem in this genre. Sure, sure. Um, this one doesn't barely matters though. This one barely matters though, and it's like hard to be mad at like the little brother from the hate you give, even though like in any other con, if this movie was not about a police shooting, right. it'd be like I'm over that little brother who like destroys everything that comes in contact with him. I like though that this movie, even though it feels like a, not a real high school in terms of like. Let's bring all these like very diverse people who have diverse interests and sexualities and ethnic backgrounds together. Even though it doesn't feel like a high school that exists, really. They're all just so rich. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's aspirational and has always been a trope of the space. Yeah. But like, where's your um, Rachel E. Cook, who's like dad is the pool guy. Yeah. You know, and the the brother who can't afford nice jeans kind of thing. Like, this movie, I think all of the, I mean, except for, of course, The Hate You Give. But this and To All the Boys I've Loved Before, there's just such, like, so much money. There's so much, like, nice electronic equipment everywhere and these, like, property brothers open concept kitchens and living rooms. And they're all driving around Range Rovers and Jeeps and things like that. But I dig that even though the kids have colorful personalities and presented in interesting ways that the high school in this movie is drab it feels like a high school i mean the williamson high school is shot to look like steven soderbergh's traffic when they're in mexico (laughs) um and to all the boys everything in that movie is just like like you you sharp the sharper image make a high school yeah it's like that's what you said it doesn't look real at all and but this movie has that you know that's a real locker and then that's also parlayed into like kind of like funny student teacher dynamics that work in both the like I can imagine this happening sure. and in an improv comedy sense. Natasha Rothwell from Insecure is particularly good in this movie as the drama teacher, um, really hating their production of Cabaret and having the really funny built-in comedy of like being able to talk shit to high school thespians doing a bad job. So, yeah, Simon feels like he can... So, when this other kid outs himself on the internet anonymously as blue, mm-hmm. Simon writes to him and is like, I'm gay too. I don't know how to tell anybody. I haven't told anybody. And then there's some pretty nice you've got mail style emails back and forth. And I think Nick Robinson like really does step up as an actor like when he's waiting for the first message to come back. It's true. He's like so, and he's so very physical, so ill at ease. I thought that was great. You know, I think the montage is a little easy and a little reminiscent of like some better movies. Yeah. But this romance develops, and then people start to like slowly figure out about it. Specifically, Martin, who's this like dorky, kind of reddit e men's rights kind of i think your friend's hot like set me up with her i'll out you for being gay which is literally what he does right but he's i think that the character is like 
like drawn in an interesting way because he's not like a jock he's like somebody who is on letterboxd being like isn't a 17 year old being like isn't kubrick so great and i'm starring in cabaret but i think terrible yeah his politics are bad oh yeah and the way he treats women is bad and the way he treats sexuality is really bad the movie keeps martin afloat as like comedic relief for a long time after like the kind of person who would blackmail a gay young man for into outing him on the internet? Yeah, is and then not somebody we should have. Like, but then someone like who also won't take no for an answer right. when it comes to this other woman that he's in love with. The the, the sort of uh, subject of the blackmail, and then like embarrasses her pretty badly in public. Yeah. After totally not being interested in her agency at all. This is an example, I think, of the the sort of cutting edge of the YA movie running up against, like, the softer conventions of the high school genre. Right. Where it's just like, we got this goofball's got to make the big gesture. And it's like... If yeah, Heath Ledger these... buys uh, Julia Stiles a guitar at the end, she'll forgive him for, like, b- duping her for a semester. <laughs> but this goofball is a villain. He's the villain. If this if this guy were your friend and you went to high school with him, it would be you'd be your responsibility not to talk to this motherfucker anymore. But then I also feel the same way about the way Simon behaves, where he then is like totally fine with going along with this blackmail scheme, even though like he's gonna out himself. He just wanted to have some control over it. While it's understandable, like why play along and then like hurt at least four other people? who yeah. may have been happy if they were allowed to pursue relationships with some variation of this young girl who's being targeted by a sexual predator. I think this movie is a lot better than To All the Boys in several ways, and we'll talk about those because it's more realistic. And it's but, also better made and far more professionally <laughs> shot and edited But and then you, have, you see it lean into kind of the Mamma Mia of it all with those setups. Right. Which is just like, do we have to do like... The crazy farcical like switcheroo, and then people are like, "You switcherooed me, you asshole!" And it goes back to the real, and it's like, "Yeah, he shouldn't have done that. That was a crazy thing to try and attempt." I just think there's a better story in here where he like connects with these young men and thinks that they're the ones. A la, you've got mail. Like, just make this shop around the corner. Mm-hmm. You know, with this email about about two men and in high school. And you don't even have to have the weird, like, heteronormative love story in here between his friend and this new girl from town. And then also the weird, the girl from uh, 13 Reasons Why Mm -hmm. as his friend who knows he's gay but, like, is in love with him anyway, which I guess is a trope. But I don't know. It seems like it's forcing that high school packed movie onto something that could be so much more interesting. Yeah. Can we talk about the soundtrack? You want to talk about the soundtrack? You were telling me the other day how much you didn't like bleachers. And now you're like, I think this is the best soundtrack of the three. I think this is the best soundtrack of the three. I, I mean, I think bleachers is so like sophomoric in their efforts, but because it's on this maudlin cheesy, high school packed movie premise like wild heart like kind of works yeah it's true and jack antonoff like his sensibility works when you're in this emotionally heightened place where like 
if I get outed as a 16-year-old, my life's over. It's like, well, you, they probably think that. I think the mere inclusion of a single Tupac song going back to the title of The Hate You Give is probably tops out an entire soundtrack of Bleachers in my book. The Hate You Give has a good soundtrack, too. It's got some Billie Eilish on there. Some Kendrick. Some Kendrick Lamar. Yeah. It's got so that's interesting. I think all three of these movies have pretty interesting soundtracks, yeah, but this right. one, it feels like a project went into developing the sound for this movie. That's true. In a way that is nice. Like it's mm-hmm. nice when someone really puts an it puts an effort into. This movie had a production. Again, we're looking at you to all the boys. Right. But I don't think like the hate you give was like, oh, let's who are we gonna get as our like special right. soundtrack producer. It's like they got they went out and got Jack Antonoff to do I mean to shamelessly put all of his music and some of his friends' music into this thing, but at least there was some intentionality to it. It's true. I like this movie. I think that Nick Robinson is is good. He kind of looks like he's a, he just has a long face. He kind of looks like David Strathairn probably looked at age fifteen, <laughs> um, but you know he he's handsome and believable, and I like the dynamic that he has with the um, you know the much more uh, flamboyant gay kid at the school who's comfortable in his own skin has been out for several years, and then he's sort of the one who who you know, just dresses in, in sweatshirts and presents in this very like norm core way. Right. And the discussion that he ends up having with that kid in the principal's office about like, it's no easier for me just because like my identity is more exhibitionist. Right. Like we're all going through this. I think he, he does a good job of, of bringing that character to center. Can we talk about the ending of this movie? Sure. I think the kiss at the end of this movie is like one of the biggest achievements of like normalizing non-heteronormative relationships yeah that i've ever seen or i've seen recently like it's not like a because it doesn't play it for serious it doesn't play it for like your moonlight kind of these two sad men kissing because like the world has given up on them it's two teenagers at a fucking carnival and they kiss in a crowd cheers yeah and the movie expects you to cheer in the same way you'll cheer when Molly Ringwald kisses whomever at the end of a John Hughes movie. Yeah. It's yeah, it's normalizing that place in in the Hollywood version of these films. And it just it felt tender to me. But I think ultimately this movie's more nice than it is good. I'm gonna give it a soft good good. I think I'm gonna give it a bad good. Okay. I think it just doesn't consider enough about what it's saying that while it's it's hard is in the right place, I think it's its notes are just a little too off tune for me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I'm glad that I watched it. And I enjoyed watching it, and I'd I'd watch it again if it were on. Um, but I'm not gonna say it's like the seminal gay teen movie or something. But it's a start. It's a start. All these movies are great starts. All That's the start. interesting thing about the YA. To all the boys might just be the end of. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that's just a punctuation. Um, but I like the idea of YA as an entry point into something bigger. Into more complex stories, into better movies, yeah. into all kinds of things. But then at the same time, I get a little cynical in that your ladybirds of the world exist without having like a massive best-selling YA novel there to like have it be about like, what's the deal with Catholic schools? Yeah. 
or having forced narration. Right. Like, hello, I'm 17. My right. dad is this way. My dad's a weirdo. Let's talk about uh, To All the Boys I've Loved Before. I would love to. Netflix, 2018. We don't have a great track record reviewing Netflix films. It's because they're trash. Or I should say, <laughs> I should say they don't have a good track record with us. It's still because they're trash. That's more to the point. Um, yeah, so this is directed by uh, Susan Johnson. Yes, Jenny Han wrote this book, and then it was adapted by clearly a 30-something-year-old person who's like, I wonder what circumstances we could create to have this 17-year-old really be into John Hughes movies just the way we are, so we don't have to develop a character that feels authentic in 2018 as a 17-year-old. And voila, they come up with Laura Jean, uh, this character stuck in a John Hughes movie. Yeah with staple of 90s comedy uh john corbett as her father and then two women who couldn't look less like her as her diverse set of sisters so lana condor plays lj uh laura jean and they live in portland oregon they it couldn't be clearer that they live in portland they see the that like what's that thing called it's like the the little bubble that like floats down the hill yeah the bubble tram from the the, the hospital where they ride and leave no trace yeah, um, this one's definitely played for more laughs than Leave No Trace. Right. I was wondering, you and I were joking earlier that like maybe there's crossover here. This, But this is a funny movie if you live in Portland because it's, like, it's heavy on bridge shots, but everything else in the movie is set in Los Angeles. Like It just right. couldn't be more obvious. You don't go to the corner diner to hang out with your friends and dad the way your parents did 30 years earlier because it's such a staple and i kept getting madder and madder as it went too because weirdly driving plays a big role in this movie and yeah i was just like couldn't you give me a ride in your range rover and like it's fucking portland you're not supposed to want to drive that's not what we do there get a bike get a bike keep riding or your one bike. of those scooters or whatever and yeah it goes back to the Hughesian thing which is just like her part of her thing is like i i learned to drive and i'm not scared to drive like well this is well, you're a bad driver so your little annoying sister's gonna wear her helmet <laughs> you live in riverside california this is in come on right take the bus high school students take the bus and the train in portland right and um, so yeah so it's this it's three asian daughters being raised by john corbett who's then the mother's dead and that's like an interesting YA sort of diversity question there we don't have to touch on it though it's a little weird though because you have to assume that the in the in the very opening scene john corbett is attempting to make korean food right because the, the way mom used to the way mom used to and he can't really and he can't do it and i that has to be something in the jenny han book which neither of us have read right um with just like the more of her identity is tied up in, you know, having parents from two different backgrounds. Right. But in this movie, it's just weird. The opening scene, she's basically like, I have a mom who's dead and she was Korean. And then later in the movie, we have Boba T. And then it's like, <laughs> and? Well, I didn't understand that. So the, her sister, she's one sister who's supposed to be one year older than her, but seems like she's 20 years older than her. She's that actress is like 33. We looked it up. Right. And she also doesn't look anything like either of... None of the three sisters look anything alike. It's curious. It's curious. It gets curiouser and curiouser. But to go back to the plot, 
so LJ is Laura Jean has has her letters. Yeah, she's a she's a romantic of of Austinian whimsy. She has these uh, well in her mind though, not in her actions, just in her 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 reading and writing. And she has five letters in a box on her closet shelf um, that she's written to all the boys she's loved before, um, but she doesn't have any plans to send them. They are just yeah. Her she's a fantasist. But um, she did put forever stamps on them just in case they do get released years later. That's right. <laughs> which is, of course, what happens, which incites, again, like sort of a Mamma Mia. <laughs> Here we go again. Sort of constructed plotline with all these people kind of returning. But then it, it's like, not about those loose ends because we don't hear from one of the characters, which sets two up uh, two of them, which sets up sequels. And then it becomes a let's make a pact movie. Right. Yeah. Where... Laura Jean's in love with her sister's ex-boyfriend who she loved before the sister dated him. Right. And then to make sure that to, to prevent him from finding out that that's the way she actually feels. Cause he did receive a letter from her stating this. She starts dating Peter Kavinsky who also got a letter, but that was from like years earlier. And he's also trying to make his ex-girlfriend jealous. So they decide by dating each other that they can, on Laura Jean's side show that she's not interested in Josh is his name. Right. And then on Peter Kavinsky's side show that they'll play hard to get with the, the ex-girlfriend. I think you should branch out, make some new friends. Nope. You never know what could happen. That's what I'm afraid of. My letters are my most secret possessions. I write them when I have a crush so intense. I don't know what else to do. There are five total. Peter, the most popular guy in school, Kenny from camp, Lucas from homecoming, John Ambrose from Model UN, and Josh, but he's my sister's boyfriend. What are you doing? Nothing. Nobody else knows about them. Hey, can I talk to you? I I really appreciate it, but it's never gonna happen. I'm sorry, what? I think it's really cool that you think I have golden specks in my eyes. Oh my god. It's Josh. Oh my god. Oh, okay. The letters are out. Women. One of the weird things of this movie is, just like in Mamma Mia, if you, if you, if you tuned out of the ABBA for a second, you're like, why does Meryl Streep think that these three men are here right now? What could she possibly? Why? Why does she possibly think they're here? The same thing happens in this movie, where LJ believes that the letters went to the goodwill and then were mailed. Right. And then for ninety minutes of the movie, that's just what she believes. She's just like someone at the goodwill mailed my letters to all these boys. Not my conniving, annoying little sister, who's the worst the part beginning. of this movie. So like, th- you're getting deeper and deeper into this like ludicrous plot. And right. it's just like, if, stop for a moment and ask how these people got your letters. Right. And I'm not convinced like by the the sister's excuse at the end. She's like, oh, I did it because you're never acting on your emotions. It's right. Like, you did it to be an asshole. The movie doesn't double down enough down the stretch of her of LJ being a not confident person of being someone who needs to get outside of her head. Like that's, that's the big character trait that it has to work with and develop. Sure. And it doesn't do it. And part of, in addition to the like goodwill mailing letters thing, you get deeper and deeper into this movie and 
deeper and deeper into her relationship with Peter, which becomes the central kind of like, and I think at times really fun and cute rom-com relationship of it all. But every time the movie turns toward Josh, who's her sister's ex-boyfriend, this movie, first of all, he's annoying. And this movie just doesn't make a lick of sense. Everything she does, like, well, I couldn't possibly tell my older sister that I'm with Peter because then she would know I love Josh. And you're like, does your older sister even know who Peter is? Or care. Does this matter at all? What about your own happiness? Well, that's what I understand, too, is the sister is so gung-ho about, like, so she goes off to college and her Korean mother told her never to go to college with a boyfriend. Right. And so she does that. There's all kinds of weird, like, axioms in this movie. <laughs> There's only a lot of axioms in all three of these movies. There's another you know, one. One of them, it's the Black Panther code. And this <laughs> one, it's don't take a boyfriend to college. There's another one where LJ's like, my, my older sister always said there are three things you can do with things. Throw them away. Recycle eat them. them or <laughs> burn them. It's like, she always says that? How often yeah. does that come up? You guys seem to have a lot of things in your beautiful large house. That's for, not like, a... You're not living, you're not like keeping cereal in jars or something. Yeah, taking boxes to the Salvation Army is like a big part of this. Yeah. Like the setting of this movie, which is <laughs> weird. So, so Portland. <laughs> I don't think, again, yeah, this also this is not a house that exists in Portland to my knowledge. Let me ask you this. Yeah. When there was the moment where she's in the library and she's eating that carrot and then like that girl frowns and points to that sign that says only soft foods. And then also when she falls out of her window and lands in that bush in that wide shot. Sure. Didn't you feel like this movie was going for sort of like a Wes Anderson sense of humor? It's like this, these weird details that make it funny. These like visual jokes that are like more clever than like laugh out loud hysterical it does occasionally go for like something sort of dioramic but then i also think this movie is like taking kind of like apatow pacing cues at some points where it lets the scene hang so the person can improv one more thing which adds to this feel this feeling of kind of like style and this movie's colorful and it's diverse and people and young people liked it and we still want netflix movies to be better and there's just a lot of things to kind of root for here. And yet when I go back, like that thing hit me because it keeps leaving an extra five seconds on scenes. But all that happens is the little sister says, oh my gosh. It's I like, love Boba T. You have to cut. Your little sister is not like the third funniest person on Insecure staying, saying like, Suresh, don't pretend that trumpets your penis. <laughs> It's a rental. Like, right. these are not improvs worth Well, the keeping. script's not good enough. Like, that's what the brilliance of the Apatow scripts are, is that, like, they're funny in their own right, but they also are more like outlines to allow for a certain level of improv to happen. This script is, like, a specifically hard-written John Hughes movie of a script, which was the antithesis of an improv-based comedy. Right. Yeah, I, I don't like the way this movie is made at all. But there is a an interesting chemistry between Peter Kavinsky and uh, Laura Jean. And I think Laura Jean and John Corbett. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of interesting chemistry in this movie that I think makes it pretty entertaining. Because John yeah. Corbett's a madman. Like, he's all over the place with being like, Mr. Laura Jean, like, thanks for having me for dinner. He's like, please call me brian or whatever <laughs> i'm an obgyn right you joke about that with me yeah 
Um, yeah, I think that Lana Condor at times is reminiscent of like Emma Stone, but in AZA. But this movie doesn't have that extra gear. But I don't think she has the. I guess maybe the point I'm trying to make is that I don't think there's a star of this movie. I don't think anyone's great. Mm. I think Noah Centennial is like captivating. Sure, but he's also like your quintessential fuckboy. Like you don't have like a. I don't think Laura Jean. What's her name? Laura Condor. Lana Condor. Lana Condor. I don't think she's that great. Yeah, I think she's fine. I That's think she's fine. Yeah, but I don't think she has that Emma Stone, especially with the voiceovers, yeah. kind of like. She does. There are no bits for her to commit to in right. the way EZA has bits for Emma Stone and Superbad and all of Emma Stone's early work had bits she could lean really hard into. What's it's hard? hard to tell. This movie doesn't have that extra room for her. I mean, I think maybe the character is difficult, too, because she's all about, like, her internal, like, book smart romance stuff. Right. It's not about how she... So when she passes out, it's like, did you just trip? Or, like, did you have right. a panic attack because, like, all the boys got their letters? Right. There's not much outward stuff, but maybe that's just a symptom of not being that great at acting also. It it could be either one. But I think that... I think that Noah Centennial just has that inherent watchability. Every single thing he did, even He's if like it was a, sort of, like mumbling just like i don't know what you want and like mussing up his hair was just like what are you about to do other than sound like mark ruffalo with every yes, single yes, line yes, he i wrote that i was just about to say that he is definitely like it's like what is he gonna do next well i'll tell you in 20 years he's gonna be mark ruffalo right. that they have that they haven't remade 13 going on 30 with the mark ruffalo character and noah centennial as the 13 year old is ridiculous He's got that, I, what did I write down, like, Italian-American vocal fry is his acting right. choice. And he's got that great, like, lower chin scar yeah. thing. The way that racist Chris has, like, the eyebrow scar right. in uh, The Hate You Give. Like so many Netflix movies, it's so weird to um, align the way that creators talk about Netflix, which is so adoring, and I don't know if it's just because they're free with their money, um, but they're just like, they gave me so much creative freedom. But then you want to be like, but did they force you to put it out in 10 days? Well, that's what's so crazy about this movie is that the book came out and then it was optioned in March of 2018 and then came out on Netflix in what, July of 2018? I think August, but yeah. But that's crazy yeah. that that movie turned around so quickly. Like how much, how long was the principal photography? A week? You know, a helicopter over Portland and then six days in LA. Send the B unit to the helicopter. We're shooting this thing in the in the studio today. But just lines like like we were talking like we were making fun of, such as like my sister says all the time, you can either throw away recycle or give away. And it's just like did any did anyone do like a second pass on this script? No one is people just don't consider craft with Netflix movies. I will, right. I guess we'll see about that Alfonso Corone one. I just have a feeling when people say like, oh my God, Netflix is so open, like with their create, what they're really saying is like, yeah, they don't like check our work very often. Yeah, they give me no <laughs> notes and encourage me not to give myself any. Yeah, they encourage lazy filmmaking. Yeah. Again, like I think this is a good step for the genre, but it's not that much, it's my, it's kind of a lateral step to Easy A. It's right. no better. It's, it's much worse than Easy A, I think. Yeah. No, I think that's fair. Because I mean, Easy A for all for its flaws, and we talked about them on that show. Like Easy A is a production; it was yeah. clearly in a theater. It was clearly Stanley trying to, Tucci, for God's it was trying sake. to get people of a certain age to think about high school movies a certain way. Thomas Hayden Church and Lisa this, Kudrow. 
movie is just like it's content. It does feel a bit like content. Yeah. Which we've now turned into more content, so we're not blameless here. No, but I think this genre, that's the one sticky thing about YA too, is that like some of these movies were just like the idea was created and then the book was written after and then the movie was greenlit. So uh-huh. you can't you can't help but feel like a lot of this is content because some of these productions are such factories. Yeah. You know, and that's leads you to like we'll make a movie about race but set it in america right nowhere specific you know this movie's in portland because like my older brother watches portlandia and that must be cool right you know yeah yeah there's neither much like infrastructural oversight or craft involved nor is there anything particularly like a tourist or voicey about any of these these are all company productions that needed to come out now that have their very obvious hooks. They seem to all strive for bad good in a way. Yes. The way that like, you know, there's a difference between a network sitcom and like the goofy things that Disney Channel puts out, which are still three cameras on a soundstage, but there's something weird about them. Mm -hmm. There's something off. And these feel like the Disneyfication of what were scrappier, indier high school movies. You, that, that's a good way to put it. This is just a very, very hip Disney Channel original movie. I frankly think that's what it is. Yep. I mean, if we were in a different time and these books came out I, and YA was a different space, I think they would just be optioned for TV. And this is kind of what Netflix is. I think this movie is occasionally very cute, but I'm going to be mean and give it a bad, bad. I think there's enough to hold on to it culturally and there's like enough think pieces you can read to kill an afternoon after you watch this movie to make it bad good. That's totally fair. But Netflix just do better. You don't have to put out 13 things every Friday. Anything else to say about this genre? I think we covered it. Yeah, I think we did it. Um, Sometimes didactic, sometimes nonsensical, but... Always pretty entertaining, I would say, and definitely better than watching three jukebox musicals in a row. It's an interesting, interesting space. They but make... I'm glad we got to dwell on it for a moment. I'm glad we get to dwell in the same space, you and I, right now. That was a good segue. In this hotel room, The Graduate, in the Haymarket in Lincoln, Nebraska. Thanks for putting me up here. Thanks for coming to stay, man. We should wrap this up before Nate like, really gets mad at us. Yeah, it looks like he's trying to go to sleep pretty soon. He's been tossing and turning for about the last half hour. <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> finish up. You made your point. Move on. You know, I feel that way about me sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes you and I just... What was that phrase I used earlier? We just wring out the washcloth of bits until there's nothing quite left. There it is. Um, this is a dry cloth, my friend. I'll see you later. I can't wait. But it's been great to behold you. I'm 